everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Social Work Journal. I'm your host, Del Tom. I just want to say I am so happy to be back. This is my first recorded episode in a few months now. So I just want to say to all the newbies, welcome. And in case you're wondering what this podcast is all about, we basically normalize everyday experiences by connecting them to research, peer-reviewed journals. I talk about some of my own experiences. And of course, we have to talk about pop culture. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right in. So today our topic is is manipulation. What does it mean to manipulate? Simply put, manipulate means to control, to alter, or change. Remember those three concepts, control, alter, or change, okay? Now, oftentimes we think of it as the first definition, control, but alter and change is essentially manipulation. So although it has a negative connotation, there are some positive ways in which people manipulate. Because to manipulate for the greater good of the whole or for the greater good of the other person is somewhat altruistic, I think it's safe to say. So let me give you an example of a positive manipulation that's physical. Let's say you're driving and there's a deer in the middle of the road. And so you grab the wheel of your car and you make a sharp turn to swerve out of the way so that you don't hit the deer and essentially you don't injure yourself or the other people who may or may not be in your vehicle. That would be an example of a positive physical manipulation, right? You did it for the greater good of the whole and you did it for the greater good of the other party, the deer. Let me give you an example of a positive mental manipulation. Remember when you were a kid and your parents used to say, If you want dessert, you have to wait till after dinner, right? Because you'd say, oh, mom, you come home. Oh, mom, dad, can I have that brownie? They say, "Mm, not till after dinner. That would be an example of a positive mental manipulation. What are your parents trying to do? At that age, when you're young, you know, you're a kid, you don't have the cognitive process to be able to delay gratification or to control impulses. You're very impulsive when you're a kid. You know that you like something, it tastes good, and you want it, right? You don't understand that eating a lot of non-nutritive food has negative impact in the long run because if you're not getting your nutrition, you're not going to grow. You're not going to have energy. You're going to be grouchy. It's going to mess with your mental processes. So your parents, they understand the importance of you eating nutritive food. And essentially what your parents are doing is they're teaching you to delay gratification and prioritize the nutritive food that's actually doing something for you so that when you get older and you are able to understand things at a wider scope and delay gratification and your cognitive processing is more developed, you understand the importance of eating healthy, right? So that will be an example of a mental manipulation. So let's talk about a positive emotional manipulation. Let's say you have a friend who just experienced something traumatic, something that was disturbing or a circumstance that just, it made them feel bad. So they're co-ruminating with you. Let's say the situation is, oh, your friend Susie broke up with her boyfriend or her boyfriend broke up with her rather. So as she's co-ruminating with you, she's going through all these scenarios in her mind and she's saying, well, maybe if I hadn't said this, things would have worked out. We'd still be together. 
Maybe if I had been more understanding or if I had been more patient, she's just going through all this negative self-talk while she's co-ruminating with you. So being the great friend that you are, you say, you know what, Susie, remember that time when I was going through something very terrible and you were the first person to call? Well, you certainly were a good friend then, so I can't imagine that you weren't a great girlfriend. Or you remind her of all these wonderful attributes about herself. Oh, Susie, I've always admired this quality about you, and you're such a great person in this way. This is something I always strive to be. Susie's going to stop engaging in that negative self-talk because the wheels in her mind are going to start turning and she's going to replay and she's going to rethink and she's going to say to herself you know something you're right I guess I did do the best thing that I could possibly in that relationship to make it work and maybe it just wasn't meant to be I guess I was a good girlfriend I guess I was good for him what you did was you manipulated your friend Susie in a positive way because it was to her benefit and It was an emotional manipulation, right? Because you stopped her from engaging in that negative self-talk and now she's engaging in positive self-talk. So you did something awesome. That's an example. These are all examples that I just mentioned of how you can manipulate others in a positive way. Now let's talk about when manipulation turns negative. Manipulation becomes negative when someone attempts to use tactics to control another able being to do things that work in the benefit of the manipulator. So it's not positive. It's not for the greater good. It's not for the benefit of the other person. It's for the benefit of the manipulator. So the first tactic that I want to talk about that manipulators use is the guilt tactic. So guilt tactics, the whole objective of them is to make you feel that you need to do more no matter how much you're doing. So I saw an example of this. I was watching this show called Love and Marriage in Huntsville. It's actually my first time ever watching it, so I'm pretty far behind. So one of the husbands on the show tells his wife that by working, she is no longer meeting the needs of the family. Specifically, what he's arguing is that she's not meeting the needs of the children. In actuality, what this husband is doing is he's using a guilt tactic to try to get his needs met. He's not thinking about his wife's needs or the children's needs. And this can really be evidenced by simple logic, because if it was really about the children, wouldn't he just compensate and help out in areas that the wife is no longer able to fulfill because she's working? Just saying, he's using guilt tactics to make her quit her job because then she can attend to all his needs and then he doesn't have to pitch in and do things he doesn't want to do. So now let's move on to the comparison tactic. And this is when someone is trying to make you feel that what you're doing is not measuring up. So let's say you're at a charity event and you run into an associate and they ask you, oh, how much are you donating this year? And then you say with pride, oh, I've been saving up this year to donate and I'm going to donate $1,500. That's three times what I usually donate. And then this person, this associate replies to you by making a statement like $1,500, you know, that's a drop in the bucket. I spend that on a pair of shoes. You know, that is used to manipulate you and control you and make you think that you didn't do enough. It's kind of like that guilt tactic, but it's a comparison tactic. And I saw something like that in an interview. Actually, I don't know if you guys have ever watched this show. I like reality shows. It's it's like my little guilty pleasure. 
Selling Sunset. So there's a lady from Selling Sunset. Her name is Christine Quinn. And she was on a podcast called um, Call Her Daddy. And they were asking her about this fake storyline where supposedly she was bribing a client with $5,000. And she said, $5,000? I would never bribe a client with $5,000, which is reasonable to believe. But then she goes into, what am I, poor or something? I spend $5,000 on manicures. Now see, that's when we're getting into some manipulation tactics because you're trying to make people to feel stupid for even thinking that that could even be a possibility. And it's like, well, if what you're saying is true, why must you take it that far? Why couldn't you just stop it? I would never try to bribe a client with $5,000 to work with me exclusively because number one, that's not my character. Number two, my clients make way too much money. I mean, $5,000 wouldn't incentivize them. And number three, you know, that's illegal and I don't commit illegal acts. I do my business in a legitimate way. She could have just stopped there. But she had to throw in that part about, well, I spent $5,000 on manicures and what am I poor? And I think that's when people start to kind of question and say, well, maybe that didn't happen. But is there some truth to what happened? People get a little skeptical because you're saying something that's a little bizarre and out of the box. When you say you spend $5,000 on manicures, are you talking about per year? I know you're not talking about per session because what kind of manicure is that? Okay. So anyhow, that would be an example of a comparison tactic. Now let's get into marginalization tactics. And that's when the manipulator starts downplaying your efforts by using language to make it sound smaller, or maybe they just plain out don't even respond to you. They just ice you out. That would be an example of a marginalization tactic, okay? So let's say, you were to share this revolutionary idea with your intimate partner about a way that you guys can create wealth and help you both retire at an early age. And your partner listens to you intently and they let you finish. And then they say something to you like, well, I could have told you that, you know, because everybody knows that blah, 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 blah. You know, they're sort of marginalizing your idea. Instead of just saying, you know, that's a great idea. That's a very insightful. I mean, if they say something to the effect of, I've thought of that myself and they share or they add to the conversation, is that a marginalization tactic? Absolutely not. But if for some reason they're just trying to downplay whatever it is that you're saying and try to make it sound like the idea was just ludicrous, like, oh, you know, everybody knows that, you know, you didn't come up with anything new that I would question. Because what was the purpose of them marginalizing you in the first place? Was it to enlighten you or was it to bring you down, make your idea sound small so that they don't have to feel so insecure because you actually did have a good idea? Just saying. So let's move on to the next topic, the next category, which is word salad. Now, word salad is meant to confuse you. And word salad is when you take two things that don't really belong together, you mash them up, but then you try to make them sound logical. And the whole purpose of this is to throw a person off. Now, I don't know how many of you have been keeping up with the Depp versus Heard lawsuit, 
but I think this is a prime example of using word salad. So if you paid attention to the closing arguments by Mr. Rottenborn, I think his name is Mr. Benjamin Rottenborn, one of Amber Heard's um, attorneys, he argued that um, something along the lines of if Amber didn't tell her friends, then she's a liar. But if she tells her friends, then they're colluding with her. To be fair and accurate, I believe he actually said the word hoax in reference to a statement that Johnny Depp's former attorney had made publicly to assert that Amber Heard and a couple of her friends staged a scene in her formal marital penthouse to make it look like there had been a domestic violence situation going on. What's problematic about Mr. Rottenborn's closing argument is that it's made to make someone believe that they're doing something wrong by re-examining or re-evaluating inconsistencies in Amber Heard's behavior. Someone from the outside reasonably could say, hmm, that's odd. She told her friend about this incident and that incident, this incident, but her friends have no knowledge of that one. It's just a question. It's not really to say that she's right or she's wrong. It's just how can we believe something that's not consistent, right? So you get into this kind of word salad and it gets mixed and it gets twisted and it's to derail you from what your original thought was because automatically what I was thinking was, well, it is natural that people would question maybe the validity of some of her friend's testimony if we knew that her friends were maybe dependent on her financially or maybe they were so in deep with some of the accounts that they had prior when they were actually still friends with her that now that they're not friends with her to go back and say something different you're totally discrediting yourself and then what kind of implications or what does that leave you open for so there's nothing wrong with people questioning the evidence when you see inconsistencies but that word salad will confuse you and it'll make you feel like something's wrong like you're not processing things right and when someone is trying to manipulate you they don't want you to use your own natural thought pattern what they want you to do is stop thinking for yourself they want to confuse you they want to throw you off and derail you so that they can manipulate you into thinking the way that they need you to think because remember the whole objective is to get you to do something that benefits them so to just kind of sum up this example of word salad, what I thought was so disheartening a little bit about some of the closing arguments was there was some guilt tactics kind of looped in there as well. I think the problem is, is the issue between Depp versus Heard in that lawsuit and all the things that we heard through the media. And then if you actually got to watch the trial, to me, it sounded like it was a couple's issue. But somehow the couple's issue was being politicized as this social issue. And it was being sort of painted as this issue between gender. And the fact of the matter is, is domestic violence isn't about gender. Okay, domestic violence, it is what it is. Men can be abused, women can be abused. I don't think that we should be utilizing what has happened in history, which is historically, yes, women have been oppressed by some of the laws and the institutions in our society 
But today we have a lot more rights and we're able to speak up for ourselves. When we take something historical and we weaponize it and we say, well, if you don't believe this particular individual's experience and what they're expressing, then you're setting women back. You're setting all women back and you're setting domestic violence victims back. There's that word salad again, because we're not making it about the individual. We're not making it about the actual issue, we're politicizing it and we're socializing it and essentially saying that if you can't believe this instance, then you're setting all of society for women back. And it's like, well, it makes you feel guilty because you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't want to set us back. So I guess I should support Amber Heard and some of her claims. And then you stop looking at the evidence and you stop thinking for yourself. So the point is, is that is the whole purpose of word salad is to confuse you. Now, if you have been keeping up with the Depp versus Heard lawsuit, then I'm pretty sure you have seen the recent interview that Amber Heard did with Dateline, where she makes an analogy between taking out a mortgage and pledging. Now, I'm not even going to bother to analyze that. It's like, girl, I may have been born yesterday, but I stayed up all night. You don't have to talk to me like I'm stupid. Okay. So anyways, the point is this word salad meant to cause you confusion, but something that she did bring up that was interesting was the ideology that people don't believe her because she's not the perfect victim. What she's actually referring to is there is a theory called the ideal victim theory. And that's where you have to be seen as vulnerable. You have to be seen as this person who could not have advocated for themselves or gotten themselves out of the situation. If you're not seen as someone who is weak, indefensible, couldn't get yourself out of the situation, then you're not the ideal victim. And then sometimes people will revert to victim blaming. And that's what she was actually referring to. I want to move on to our next category of what I call um, manipulating someone in a negative way. And I refer to this as the mirroring tactic. So when someone mirrors you, essentially what they're doing is they are keying in on what your interests are, what your values are. What is it that you take pride in that you have a sense of identity with? So for instance, let's say you're an artist. Most artists don't just see that as something that they do. Most artists see that as a part of their being. So someone who wants to manipulate this artist who takes such pride in being creative and being an artist, they may come along and start to inquire about their art and give them compliments about their art. And then they might go on and share some of their knowledge about art and their appreciation about art. Naturally, this will make this person feel connected to this other person because we as people, we have essential needs, psychological needs, or rather if we were to refer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we have physiological needs where we need to feel connected to others. And we feel that connection to others by finding that commonality. So what that manipulator is doing is they're trying to establish a commonality with the other person. So that person has a sense of belonging and they feel understood. And through that, they're able to get close to that other person. Once they can get close to them, it's easy to start going into some of those other tactics of manipulating because 
naturally when someone is so kind to you and you feel so connected and so understood by that person and that's your beginning experience as you all go along and you start to get some of those guilt tactics you start to get some of those comparison tactics you start to get some of that word salad it throws you off but then you revert back to beginning memories and you start to say to yourself oh my goodness you know Maybe this person is not so bad because I remember that connection that we had. And that's the whole purpose of the mirroring tactic. Now, I want to go into the last tactic, and that's the vulnerable tactic. And I think what I mean by vulnerable tactic is I mean, when a person is trying to manipulate you, something that they may do is they may try to, once they establish that connection that we just talked about with the mirroring tactic, they may try to find out what your deepest, darkest secrets are, or something that you really hold close to your chest. It's not something that you share often with people. So one way that they may do this is at the beginning of the relationship, or maybe, maybe they'll give you a little time. Maybe they'll space you out and give you a little time. But typically, they at the beginning of the relationship, They want to get close to you, right? So what they may do is they may share something that's very personal, very deep, and they'll preface it by saying, you know, I really want to tell you something about me and this isn't something that I normally share. And it's something that makes them appear to be vulnerable. But the whole purpose of this, and be weary when someone does this to you and you don't really know them that well, the whole purpose of this is to make you feel comfortable to let you kind of feel like you're in a space where you could put your guard down and then you'll start sharing some of your most deepest, darker secrets or things that you normally wouldn't share. But beware, because they're waiting for the opportune moment to turn around and use that against you to hit you where it hurts. And that's what I would consider to be a vulnerable tactic. I'm going to take something very intimate about you, something that you don't normally share, something that you hold close to your chest. I'm going to hold that. I'm going to keep that in my mind. And then when the right moment comes where you're not doing what I want you to do, and it's usually when those other tactics that we talked about didn't work, the guilt tactic, the comparison tactic, the um, word salad, mirroring tactic, when those things aren't working anymore, That's when they go for the juggler and that's the vulnerable tactic and they're going to hit you where it hurts and then you're going to be like, whoa, where did this come from? And then maybe they can will you to their submission. So keep that in mind. So I want to leave you with a final note because I know we've heard about all these different tactics that people use to manipulate others and it may be making you feel like, oh my gosh, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I combat this? The best way to handle a manipulator No matter what you read on the internet, what you see, the best way to handle a manipulator is by doing nothing. The less that you engage them, the less they're able to manipulate you. Trust me and believe me, I've been there, I've experienced it myself. For instance, I had a manipulator who was using somewhat of what I would call the vulnerable tactic and somewhat of the mirroring tactic where they had gotten close to me by kind of keying in on my interests and my values, which is I value myself in being a hard worker and I pride myself in that. 
But the vulnerable tactic is what they use is they use that interest and that part of my identity against me and to hit me where it hurt when they couldn't will me into submission. So what this person was doing was they were trying to discredit my work and the quality of my work, knowing how much I took pride in it. And I was naturally defending myself, questioning the evidence. I was saying, well, how could you say this when in actuality, this is is what really happened, right? That's a natural response. And that's where they got me. I learned from that situation that what I should have done is said nothing. So when you're dealing with a manipulator, here's what you do. You nod your head and say nothing. Because if they don't have anything to kind of reel you in and engage you, then they have to stop or they're just arguing with themselves. And if you've ever dealt with a manipulator, you know that typically there's only so many tactics like the ones we talked about today. So what happens is they keep using the same tactics over and over and over and over. This one didn't work. This one didn't work. They keep going. And then after a while, you're looking at them and whoever else is around is looking at them. And you realize this is a one trick pony that I'm looking at. Now I see you for what you are. I'm pretty clear about it. But if you're engaging, you can't open your eyes to see what's actually going on. So I want to empower you when you're dealing with a manipulator, do not engage Keep your engagements very simple if you have to engage. If they say something to kind of degrade you, maybe they're using the marginalization tactic. You just say, hmm, interesting. Or I never thought of it that way. Or just nod your head and say nothing. It stops it right there in its tracks. Don't keep going on and on with this person, okay? So I want you to try that. And for those of you out there who have suffered from manipulation tactics, I hope that this podcast was helpful. I hope it was insightful. Please write me at thesocialworkjournal at gmail.com because I'd love to hear your stories about how you overcame manipulation. It was great having you all here today. I'm your host, Delton. And until we meet again, bye-bye.